Welcome. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California. I'm Michelle Miao, and for those who are joining us for the very first time, you've never been here, don't know about the program, my program here at the club is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. So, Jeff, thanks for being in between there somewhere. (laughs) Um, So our guests, I'll do a proper introduction as soon as the other Jeff arrives, but... Our first Jeff doesn't really need that much of an introduction, and, and, and instead of doing the whole formal, you know, author, activist, da, 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 <laughs> we'll just chat a little bit sure. and get to know you. Um, today, we are going to talk about the golden screen, the movies that made Asia America, that made us, uh, you know, especially those who identify in the AAPI community here. Um, but yeah, first, you. Uh, yeah. First of all, Michelle, thank you so much for having me back here. This is the second time I've been on this stage. Uh, I was here with uh, several Phils last time uh, for Rise, the prior book that I did. And now we're going to try to re- repeat the magic with multiple Jeffs. And uh, for now, um, the backup uh, Jeff sitting here is is the only one on stage. But uh, the Bay Bridge is tough, and I think he'll be here hopefully any minute. Um but yeah, um, it, it's it's such a pleasure to be here in, in San Francisco. It's such a pleasure to be talking with you. And it's such a pleasure to be talking about this book, too. Um, this is kind of a culmination of a lot of different passions. Uh, I've watched movies since, you know, movies were, were kind of the thing that formed me, as I think many of us uh, can can say similarly, there was this moment, the first time that I really sort of saw someone who looked like me, who reflected me, uh, larger than life on screen, was when I had this sort of slightly disreputable uncle who was supposed to be taking care of me when my parents were working, who would instead sneak us out to Chinatown. And we'd go down to the Music Palace and watch these double features uh, with, you know, like, gangsters answering pagers, old women eating dried squid, everybody was smoking except me, uh, including my uncle. And uh, I'd be watching these double features of just, you know, like action like I'd never seen, romance, you know, uh, people who were aspirational, who were sexy, who were heroic, and who were Asian. And everything else I saw around me on media, on television and elsewhere didn't have me, you know, I was, I was kind of the empty void at the center of the screen, but this opportunity to see in living color with subtitles, uh, films that represented something that looked like me, that spoke to me, that was something that forged my, my first sense of realization that, you know, this difference in me was not that different after all. Let me ask you. So at a young age, were you looking for you on screen? Oh, yeah. I mean, we all do, right? I mean, there's a sense in which until you see yourself, you don't know yourself. And in the media especially, I mean, I didn't grow up quite like my kids have where they're facing screens. It feels like, you know, 23 out of the 24 hours of the day, right? But there was definitely a sense in which uh, in a world where you are in the minority, right? you're just seeking for any kind of acknowledgement, any kind of a sense that you belong. And the media is such a part of that. It's it's such a way in which we, you know, growing up, we're constantly looking for those glimpses of anything Asian on TV. Call everybody in the room. You know, there's a commercial with an Asian person. In it. Yeah. Um, I mean, literally, right? Uh, we, we talk about how... Uh, there's this one ad, it probably is before the time of a lot of people in this audience, but there was this one ad uh, from this de- like laundry detergent called Calgon, right? And it was the first time, I think, me and my sister saw two Asian people speaking English without an accent on screen. The ad basically goes, they're running a laundry because, of course, you have to have some stereotypes, right? Uh, and a, a woman comes in and says, oh my gosh, how do you get these shirts so clean? And... The man who's, you know, one of the proprietors, the the male proprietor says, ancient Chinese secret, right? 
And then the wife leans out and says, honey, we need more Calgon. Ancient Chinese secret, huh? Right? Is the, the rejoinder. The, uh, so after seeing that, me and my sister, every single time my parents said anything to us, we'd always be like, ancient Chinese secret. <laughs> so anyway, there, there is that aspiration to see ourselves, you know? Yeah. Were you looking for... This is this is a question um, that's personal for me mm. because when I was growing up, uh, my mom had so many kids. My dad died really early uh, when they arrived here at the United States, and so she kind of had to uh, depend on family to take care of us. So we would go and stay with our cousins, uh, and they were still, you know, just really into movies, TV, dramas from back home, mm. you know, which is Laos, Thailand, and so I would grow up looking for films or, you know, Asians in films from across the pond, even though I'm Asian American. So it wasn't until later, later that I was like, Oh wait, there's, there's a little bit of a difference here. So were you looking for yourself or, you know, Asians in films from outside the United States inside or. I think it was first visuals, right? Just somebody, it almost like a mirror, the images on screen, but I mean, eventually it, it, it did make a difference that I had to read those movies, that I didn't understand Cantonese, that, I, that the context that was on screen was one that was so very different from my own world. I mean, it, it took a long time before I think I saw my first film where, or, or television you know, episode where Asian Americans were depicted in the way that our family actually lived. But I, I do think that... Uh, that even seeing those Asian images made a big difference for me. It, it, I, I grew up in Staten Island, New York, uh, kind of the whitest part of one of the least white cities in America. And everybody around me, um, like, you know, they were, they were taller, they were stronger, they were definitely whiter. <laughs> and I was an outsider. And, uh, there was definitely a sense in which I, I've just wanted that kind of parasocial acknowledgement, at least that that you know somebody like me deserved to to be there, and just even seeing those Hong Kong images, uh, those images from across the pond, as you say, uh, it, it was something, and I mean to this day, I I, I feel like. You know, we're we're in an era where when I was growing up, it was impossible to imagine that people in America would watch movies with subtitles and uh, that they would kind of lean into the idea of, of just embracing people on screen characters that looked so different from them, even though that's what I did all my life, right? I mean, you know, we're also always so worried that quote unquote mainstream audiences will flee screaming if they see people of color on screen. But, you know, those of us who grew up with this, that's all we ever saw. Uh, But here we are today, and Netflix just did this big data dump. And out of the top 25 most watched series on Netflix, series or films on Netflix, four of them are K-dramas. And you know those were watched subtitled, right? People have changed, but it's not a change that I could have imagined when I was you know, 11 years old and, and watching this stuff on screen myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you catch a lot of the earlier f- films, mm. um, right, and then we'll get into it. I mean, there's a <laughs> lot of good stuff in this book. And gosh, I have to thank you so, so much for this, because now I can hand this book down to my niece and my nephew and said, you know, and say, yes, this is all you need to know. This is all the films you need to see. Go see it. Put your phone down. I don't have to do the work. You know, I don't have to tell them like, well, you know, when I was growing up, I was watching this film and it's all here in this book. So thank you so much for this gift. Um, if you catch earlier films, right, I, 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 and you think about it, mm. I, I mean, if we watch it now, I think it would trigger us very much. It would make mm. us very upset yeah. and, and angry. Do you remember a moment like that growing up and watching something and you were like, this isn't right. Are you mm. freaking serious? Well, I will say the very first thing I've, I ever wrote, uh, I wrote for my hometown newspaper, the Staten Island Advance. Uh, they, they pronounce it advance, not advance. Uh, 
back when I was in, I think, junior high school, and there was a movie that came out called Year of the Dragon. Uh, Michael Cimino movie set in Chinatown, featured John Lone, Mickey Rourke, uh, and it, it was all about, you know, Chinatown gangsters and uh, kind of there was this one line in it. I remember um, it's like, this is not New York. This is not even America. This is Chinatown. Right. And it, it basically just carved out this, this place in New York. That was a part of my life. We would go there every weekend. We would eat them some, we would be kind of connected to this mothership. And uh, it turned it into this kind of exotic hellhole where life was cheap, you know, and people were, um, were were uh, just you know murdering each other left and right, and of course you know white people got in the middle, so people cared. And the uh, I remember my parents when they saw the commercial pub on TV, they just turned off the TV. They said, like, "You don't want to see that." And I'm like, "Why?" I mean, I want to understand what's going on here. This is a big movie. It's got some famous people in it, and it seems to have people that look like us in it. And it's like, no, 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 this is not something we want to actually support. And so I, I snuck out and, you know, ended up seeing it uh, at the mall uh, with, with friends of mine. And I just remember coming out of there and for the first time feeling threatened, right? Because people were shouting at the screen and it's Staten Island, which again, this is the West Coast. So <laughs> maybe, you know, uh, the sort of shouting imprecations at the screen kind of thing is, is not as common out here, but in Staten Island, in this very kind of, you know, a very white community, uh, lots of young kids or teenagers who were really feeling the film and, and saying, you know, things about characters on there that felt like they bounced off the screen and, and aimed back at me. And I, I ended up actually writing an op-ed about this experience, uh, I didn't think of it as an op-ed, but I just wrote this letter to the, the editor of the local paper, and and they printed it, and uh, it was my first published thing, uh, you know, my first sort of work of, you know, of, of cultural criticism, I guess, but mostly about just feeling very unsafe in this space where I was the only person of color and certainly the only Asian American in a film that seemed as if it was targeting us. So, and I think. We have another Jeff in waiting. <laughs> Everyone, Jeff Chang. <laughs> so good to see you. Hi, Jeff. How yes, are you? It's great. Great. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Jeff and Jeff. Okay, I was going to do this at the uh, intro, but uh, we're looking for another Michelle. <laughs> Is there another Michelle in the in the audience? There's not another Michelle, so I guess I got to exit. It'll be the Jeff and Jeff. It's great to see everyone, though. Jeff Chang, thank you so much for being here, both of you. Um, this is we're going to have such a fun time. So, while uh, Jeff, you were on your way here, we were just getting to know little Jeff Jeff Yang. Whoa, almost, <laughs> almost did it, almost did it. <laughs> little Jeff. Yang. So, e to ease you into the conversation, just very quickly. I mean, what are you watching on Netflix right now? Should we say <laughs> we were uh, that there's a there's a, a Filipino. Uh, cooking show, cooking themed show that we've been watching uh, the last couple of nights. I've already forgot the name. Was it? There it is. Oh yeah, replacing Chef Chico, which, wow. which is horrible. It's really bad, but it's one <laughs> of those things where you know, you know how you get into it and you're just you're in, like you've jumped in the water and the tide is sweeping you out. And so yeah, so we've been binging that. <laughs> but it's on the top ten. It is, which is amazing, right? It's it's kind of. It's kind of cool for yeah. like the right to be mediocre, right? It's, you know, honestly, uh, we'll probably get into this later, but uh, yeah, the right to be mediocre it is, it is good that we can have like filling comfort food and yeah. not everything has to be au cuisine. You know? yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It doesn't all have to win awards. We can just sort of sit there, kind of like get hypnotized, you know? <laughs> well, we're here tonight to, you know, go through the golden screen, the movies that made Asian America and, mm. you know, great you know to have both of you here then we'll talk a little bit about what you're working on and the importance and contributions you both of you have made you know to pop culture and also uh, highlighting the work that we have all done um and the progress of asian americans in general but uh jeff yang why don't you tell us a little about golden screen how you put it together and mm. kind of how you know you separate it into different chapters which 
I understand his concepts and you bring up all these films with those concepts and then they end with a beautiful interview that sums it all up with mm. uh, amazing AAPI producers, actors, innovators, you know, all of that. So, I mean, this is a book that uh, I started writing uh, a little too soon after we finished Rise. I mean, I, I got a call actually from uh, the editor of the book, Xander Kim, and he basically said, I've been looking for somebody to write a book that kind of celebrates this moment we're in where Asian American film feels like it's having a moment. And, uh, you know, he, he had heard that I was a guy who could do that. And I said, look, sign me up. Don't even, you don't even have to explain any further. I'm there. If, uh, if you need a book like this, I can write this book. <laughs> and then we had to actually get down into what the book was going to look like. And, what so I'd propose the title the golden screen obviously you know it's a, the the pun on the silver screen but it also it acknowledges the fact that this moment that we're in is one where uh we don't feel like we should be in second place anymore mm -hmm. right i mean we we deserve a little gold right uh <laughs> and it it was on the heels of um, and we'd seen Parasite, you know, kind of breaking through that first boundary and then everything everywhere all at once, crashing the stage and, and you know, getting, I mean, who could have ever imagined the most awarded film in all of cinematic history would be an Asian American film by, you know, like that combined every genre and, um, you know, was a little indie film that just destroyed every expectation. But... The question of, of what the book was going to be still sort of hinged on this idea of, like, do we want a book that's going to appeal to cineasts? You know, to, is it going to be a, a history of Asian American cinema or is it going to be something else? And I, I said, I, I'm actually more interested in writing a book that's about not creators, but about the audience. Because as we were talking about earlier, I talked a little bit about my, my childhood and how movies really kind of first shaped me. The first place I saw Asians on any kind of screen was at the Music Palace in Chinatown in New York. And movies are just a special thing. I, I feel like, you know, I, I've said this before, but when you're in a movie theater, you have this kind of weird moment where as the lights go down, it's dark. You see no one else around you. You're just staring at the screen. It feels like you're in this, like, cocoon. It, it's a very singular experience. And your relationship with the screen is individual. What you're seeing... What you're experiencing is, is in your head, in your eyes, in your seat. But then there are moments where everybody in the house laughs, where everybody goes, ooh, where everybody screams because something has broken through that cocoon. And all of a sudden, you realize you're part of an audience, part of a group. And then there's this final moment when you walk out into the lobby and everyone's talking about the film. You're looking at each other. You're even kind of going up to strangers and saying, yeah, I love that screen, that scene too. Mm -hmm. And you realize you're part of the community. And for me, realizing that I was part of an Asian American whole was very much like that. I, was, I grew up in this very, you know, again, suburban white experience. I realized there were other people because I encountered them through media, through, you know, kind of uh, other kinds of collateral connections. But I didn't feel like I was part of an Asian American community until I could walk out into that lobby, so to speak. Uh, and that wasn't until college. And so the audience just naturally felt like the thing to center. And so in doing so, each of the chapters kind of focused on a different theme, like family, for instance, or relationships, you know, gender roles, uh, martial arts, you know, all these different things that have kind of made up our cinematic diet. And within each chapter looks at how those things have evolved over time. That just felt like the right way to do it. Brilliant. <laughs> so let's let's have our discussion in that way. We're going to go through the eight chapters and the concepts and themes, and then you'll both basically chime in and add your thoughts on right the concept. So the first one chapter is across the diaspora, and some of the films I'll just list them out um, that Jeff included here: Flower Drum Song, A Great Wall, Eat a Bowl of Tea, Forbidden City, USA, Heaven and Earth, Picture Bride, Three Seasons, Lost in Translation. This is probably like where I kind of start to, you know, 
jump myself in into <laughs> oh look it there's Asians in the film but it's not about him it's kind of about him <laughs> yeah the Grace Lee project the namesake journey from the fall soul searching ghost in the shell the problem with APU go back to uh, I'm sorry Apu go back to China lucky grandma tiger tail blue bayou and I'm just going to read this quote and then we'll open up the discussion I'm 100% Asian and 100% American or maybe just 200% bad at math <laughs> quote comes from a talk with janet yang and bao Huen. so um let's start with you jeff chang and uh let's talk about diaspora and the films that kind of fall into this concept uh i just loved uh the selection how you framed it um because from the beginning it, it feels very expansive it feels very much like we're bringing everybody into this and we're not we're not dealing with these ideas of national borders like we're dealing with we're thinking about who we are and who we are always transcends borders. Right. Mm. Um, so I really like that you're putting like, you know, uh, the, the trouble with Apu with, you know, um, eat a bowl of tea, you know, and we're, you're also crossing all of these different types of years and, you know, uh, genres and um, uh, styles and periods. I mean, eat a bowl of tea is set in, San Francisco Chinatown, right? In mm. the, what, 30s or something like that? Yeah. Uh, I think, well, maybe it's like the late 40s. I think it's like 40s. after the... Huh? There was this moment where people who actually served in the military were able to actually, you know, bring people over as, as wives. And, and that's kind of a central theme in the actual... In the, in the, um, the movie itself, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's basically about impotence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For what it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> As is the show with Apu in a different <laughs> way. In a very different way. But, yeah. So I, I just loved how you from the jump were. And the other thing that I love about it too is the way that you like, uh, so uh, many of you may not know this, but Jeff was one of the pioneers of Asian American journalism mm. in a lot of ways because uh, in the 80s, yeah. Um, started a magazine called A Magazine, which in a lot of ways was like a small version. Uh, like that was almost like a test run for something you've come to here all these years later. And to see this like unfold, uh, have all of our creatives uh, in it uh, from the folks who are the actors and the writers and, um, you know, the musicians and all of that kind of stuff to the graphic designers and everything else. It's just um it's 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 beautiful. The Golden Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. It was the very tail end of the eighties, nineteen eighty nine actually, when I yeah. graduated, and then we we launched this. You know, I I'd been involved with Asian American stuff in college, and we was like, oh, you know, of course, if you ran a magazine in college, you can do it in the real world. There's no difference, right? <laughs> um, but there's no student council to fund you in the real world. <laughs> um, so. Uh, yeah, you know, the difference I think then was in the 90s when we were doing A Magazine and uh, acknowledging that one of the things we wanted to do was bring to life Asian American creativity. A, there was no internet, right? Yeah. So it's not like you could Google people. It's like, oh, Asians and movies. <laughs> I'm feeling lucky, right? It was it was very much like you had to scour everything and uh, and cherry pick. And we actually had this big file, which was the... Um, we called it the Lee file because it was all the people we thought were Asian, but then when we actually looked closely, they were not. <laughs> Spike Lee is not Asian. What are you talking about? Um, it, but Christopher Lee. Chris, yeah, it's like, yeah. you know. And so We don't I mean, know any Christopher Lees, of oh, course. But some are Asian. Not just Christopher Lee. Yeah. Uh, and I think he did play Asian. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, Thanks to Arthur Dong's uh, incredible work. We know that he wanted to be Asian. Oh. <laughs> well, who does? I'm about the guy who played Fu Manchu. Yes. So, yeah. Um, but, I mean, to your point, I mean, I, I think what A Magazine, which uh, in retrospect was as confusing a name for a magazine as having uh, a conversation between two people whose names are Jeff <laughs> Dot Ang, <laughs> right? Uh, just the radical act in some ways of bringing together a whole bunch of people and just saying, oh, look, these are Asians, right? Back then, that was something. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that act of consolidation or aggregation was something. And similarly, like when you talk about the diaspora, I mean, look, we all have very different stories. Our journeys are very different. But when you line them up side by side, you start seeing some similarities. And, you know, I, I, the, the jumping off point of, of like looking at films of the diaspora is in part to see how those, those initial places of convergence actually started to diverge as stories started to get more 
sophisticated and complicated, and they weren't all about like intergenerational strife and that feeling of being lost in America, and you know that sense of of uh, you know. I, I literally wrote my my college essay about this, like being half this and half this, right? Mm-hmm. That quote about being 100% Asian, 100% American. Well, Bao is like a generation younger than me, right? And when I was growing up, I I did feel very much split between one, you know, having one foot in each world. And writing about that wasn't cliched yet. Mm-hmm. But now to actually tell people, it's like, oh, my Asian half wants to study my American stuff half wants to party or whatever. That's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it got me into college. <laughs> right. Right. And it's still getting people into college. It, uh, well, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious. I, so by the way, part of the reason why uh, I invited Jeff is, is because out of the many uh, culture critics of our generation, people who have actually really looked at culture, there are a few people who have inspired me as much with their writing and their lives and the work they do. Uh, as Jeff. And, you know, I, I think that from the vantage point of, of the work that you've done in particular, looking at this very broad view of representation and identity and the, the building of community, I've, you know, I've taken a lot out myself in terms of how to to kind of rethink some of the the, the ways that I, I thought people would naturally sort of hear and understand some of these messages. That communication to groups outside of even Asian America is is such an important part of what we do, but it's also the hardest part of what we do in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I've been reminded a lot recently of the need for us not to have to feel like we need to perform all the mm. time for um, non Asians, non Asian Americans, non Pacific Islanders, and that's partly why I appreciated a magazine back then. Because it's like, no, this is our conversation. Everybody else can tune in if you want to, um, but it's our conversation. We want to have this conversation. And this particular book and the way that you've done it in in so many ways, the in jokes in the in the in the 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 like the renderings of the 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 redos of the movies, the make the do overs of the movies, and all that kind of stuff, um, as well as like the just the address is not to 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 other folks, and that feels more important than ever. Mm. You know, um, and so like, um, again, replacing Chef Chico, like, I just appreciate it because like, yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm in it. I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm in that and it doesn't have to be, you know, um, a super deep thing or anything. I just, it's, I'm happy not to have to feel like I need to prepare myself. Like I'm walking out the door and getting out into that, that world. I could just be like having you know, some good food and watching folks make good food and it's another, they can work on their scripts, but you know, <laughs> it's a, it's another, yeah. Standard, uh, Netflix program or something that you never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wait, the, although we've made, you know, a lot of progress, right. Mm. You know, from some of those earlier films that we called out and then some of these great successes that we're experiencing huge year, you know, right. For AAPIs in cinema, there's still some things that mm. kind of pop up and, and that we, talk about its controversy we need to work on for example ghost in the shell <laughs> i'd love for you to both of you to add you know your thoughts on when others tell our stories mm. I, I mean aren't we over the day and age in which um you know it's the the white narrative about asian experiences and or i'm i'm still trying to kind of grasp what you know what i think about uh white characters or uh, white people playing Asian characters. Mm. <laughs> well, That's still happening, though. It's very complicated, right? I yeah. mean, so Ghost in the Shell, uh, for for those of you who know kind of the deeper sort of backstory around both the, the movie and, and how it made it to American screens, I mean, it's originally a manga, which turned into an anime, so it's like yeah. Japanese creativity. Um, and it's it's very much set in... Uh, in in Japan, right? In a, in a, a a diverse Japan, but Japan nevertheless. And its its uh, central figure, the female protagonist at the core of it, is Motoko Kusanagi, you know, Japanese woman. Uh, but most of the 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 series is about you know the the blurring of lines, not between human races, but between man and machine, between artificial and human intelligences and the like, and 
it, because like in Japan, things are just like default Japanese, right? Even when you have characters with pink or blue or, or blonde hair, it's like there's no reason to assume that they're not Japanese. But as soon as things actually get remade by Hollywood, consumed and then, you know, uh, ejected into uh, uh, the pop consciousness of America, other factors come into play. And, and one of them is, well, we're going to spend a lot of money to make this big cyberpunk you know, narrative, we're going to have to get a star, right, that people can recognize and, uh, and and that can open box offices. And at the time of Ghost in the Shell being a Hollywood, becoming a Hollywood movie, really there were very few female stars, much less Asian, Amer you know, there was perceived to be no Asian American female stars who could open a film, right? And that whole notion of star power, I think, is problematic for any number of reasons, which we can talk about because, you know, the whole notion of somehow stars making Hollywood is bankrupt, right? Hollywood makes stars. Hollywood could take anybody and make them a star if they give them the right space to be a star in. The reason we don't have Asian American stars or didn't at that time is because Hollywood never bothered to give Asian American stars, especially Asian American women, the chance to shine at the center of a narrative like this. So this was a chance for that, right? But instead, they got the closest thing to Asian that was not Asian, which is Scarlett Johansson, right? And, uh, you know, she'd, she'd already kind of like uh, had an interesting career around this sort of stuff. You know, she kind of broke through with Lost in Translation also in the book. And we talk in the book about how that movie also is this narrative of like, you know, using a backdrop of Tokyo, yet again, uh, present at the time Tokyo, not future Tokyo, as a backdrop for the psychodrama of, of its protagonists who were white. And this did kind of the same thing, except with a story that was inherently a, a Japanese work to begin with. So I think a lot of people actually were pretty, you know, understandably just like, why did you do this? Yeah. And the movie was a flop anyway. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the, the thing that's new. Right. Because like if you look at the arc of of Asian Americans in cinema, I mean, this happened to Anime Wong. Yeah. Right. With The Good Earth. Um, she was passed over for the lead um, because they didn't they couldn't see beyond her playing a villain um, and uh, and a, a, a deeply sexualized villain at that. Right. So she literally is like, all right, forget this. I'm going to go to China. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of rally my folks around this. And I'm also going to go on this deep dive, you know, kind of into my own identity. Um, and she kind of got the last laugh in some ways because she was able to get uh, a newspaper column with the New York Herald Tribune where she could write about this journey. It's like one of the first pieces of, of, uh, of Asian American literature. And Yun Tae Wong writes about this in, in Daughter of the Dragon. Uh, this book that came out this past year on, on Anime Wong. But back then she had to leave the country. And now we're just like, no, Scarlett, you're done. You know? <laughs> and it's and it and it was over. And and so the the fact that like we can lead confidently here um in an environment, and you and I both come from this, where there are not a lot of prominent Asian American critics in in the culture. Mm. Real large, like movie, music, I mean, a lot of us that are doing it came up through hip hop. Mm. because literally black women editors gave us a chance. Right. Um, but there aren't too many of us out there. And so to be able to, to, to now do that, that's a, I think that's the, the huge shift. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting just to note how many ways in which gender politics, sexual politics, the politics of, of intersectionality shape even you know, stories like Anime Wong's and obviously ultimately like Scarlett Johansson's in, in Ghost in the Shell. In the, in the case of Anime Wong, right, part of the reason why they didn't want to cast her in Good Earth mm. uh, is because they'd already cast Paul Mooney, mm -hmm. right, uh, to play her husband, the no, husband. Paul Mooney, the great black, late great black comic. No, no, Paul Mooney, M-U-N-I. <laughs> the uh, right, Muni. Yeah, Muni, yes. That's who was here in San Francisco. Yeah. Paul Bart. No, uh, Paul Mooney. Uh, so because the, the Hayes Code made it essentially uh, illegal, not illegal, but, you know, a, a verboten, let's just say that, to, to depict uh, two people of different races having a relationship on screen, 
right? Something that would not actually be overcome until really like the, the 50s and 60s. Once they cast Paul Mooney, they actually turned to her and said, we understand that you are an actual Chinese person and he is not Chinese, but is playing a Chinese person. But either way, if we were to actually have you on screen, we'd actually, we'd have to cast a Chinese person as your husband. We can't do that because two Chinese people, is just too much, right? So uh, they, they did offer her a role and the role they offered her was the role of like the concubine, yeah. who's kind of the only villainous character in the entire film. Uh, and she said, no fucking way, I'm Anime Wong, as, as she should have. Um, meanwhile, if we turn to Ghost in the Shell, right? One of the things that I think was fascinating was the pressure, a lot of it from the internet, a lot of from cultural critics, right? Like ourselves, uh, talking about the problematic optics and, and, and reality of casting Scarlett Johansson in this role, a role that had so much opportunity if they did cast an Asian woman, one of the things they ended up doing was they changed the script. And they changed the script in such a way that they actually included this sort of skin changing in the act, in the plot of the, the story. That Motoko Kusanagi is, is an actual Japanese woman originally, but they, they kind of extracted her identity and dropped her into a white body as part of the plot of the, sh the movie, which is even more monstrous <laughs> at some level. Like, I would have rather she was just like Scarlett Johansson, frankly. <laughs> So it's stuff like that which which complicates a lot of what we do when we talk about uh, representations, right? It, it's it's not just what's on screen; it's what's off screen. It's what people do in response to uh, what they see on screen that actually makes up the stories. Hollywood's so weird. <laughs> um, by the way, audience, we want your. Uh, questions and your feedback so we're going to open that up in just a few minutes so if you've got a question be ready for the mic it's uh john in the back here we'll be walking around with it um so i actually now need to kind of skip around mm -hmm. because of our time mm. but that's okay because everyone get the book <laughs> you'll enjoy it as much as i have uh so we'll go to chapter three fists of furry and, and fury i sorry sometimes i gotta go from the cast road to here <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, I'm I can only say that. <laughs> yes. On this stage, at yes. least. Okay, I'm going to go through some of these films. And uh, I have to say, I love this chapter, by the way. Thank you so much for it. Because there was once upon a time where I was like, yeah, you know, not another Asian person doing kung fu. But now I'm like, why not? Keep them coming. <laughs> every single kung fu movie I've ever seen has been the best it's yeah. been the greatest i've never not loved it like for example seven samurai come drink with me enter the dragon uh duh <laughs> call me bruce the karate kid a better tomorrow dragon the bruce lee story the matrix crouching tiger hidden dragon ah my favorite mm -hmm. ong bak the thai warrior kung fu hustle Ip man the raid redemption rogue one a star wars story the paper tires mortal Kombat, snake eyes shang chi and the legend of the ten rings and triple r so anything worth doing is kung fu <laughs> that is a quote from the interview with ronnie chung and daniel Wu. yeah so uh yeah i mean and also part of your new work that's coming up why don't we start there sure um i i love this chapter as well i didn't know about rrr mm. i have to i have to find out about you gotta about watch RRR. it's it's a telugu work right but uh it is it's one of the most just striking and, you know, kind of brain melting works that I've seen uh, in a long time. And it, while the fight scenes are great, the central, I mean, you may have seen this actually, I think in the, the Oscars last year, but the, the central, uh, you know, conflict resolution actually isn't with fists. There's a dance off that completely ends up just <laughs> becoming this, this moment of, of of like Brown supremacy at the center of this movie. That's um, so so definitely wa watch for that. I think it's available on Netflix. It's uh, a Kung Fu musical or it's a, a martial arts musical. It's a martial arts uh, Tollywood film that kind of tells this historical story, but fantasizes it as one does, and then just makes its central characters larger than larger than life, yeah. uh, which I think actually martial arts is frequently does. Like martial arts leans into historical narratives and then takes those historical characters in many, in many cases or situations and then magnifies them and then 
fills them with with fisticuffs. And you know, look, when I was growing up, these are the first superheroes that I actually ever saw and came into contact with. Yeah, for sure. And you're so you're in the progress right now uh, of writing a book uh, about Bruce Lee and quote unquote the making of Asian America, which I'm fascinated by. I, we haven't talked yet about mm. the thesis of the book. But for me, it's like I can see it already. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's a it's a it's a weird kind of bio. We're calling it a cultural biography. It's kind of a dual biography about the rise of Bruce Lee and and the rise of Asian America. So I, you know, there's hundreds of books I have. Learners uh, will tell you I have hundreds of books on Bruce Lee, hundreds of magazines, way too much, um, and very few of them actually like look at Bruce as a, as an Asian American, mm. um, which he was quintessentially that. And this is sort of, I think the point of your podcast, right? They call us Bruce. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, um, there's a way to kind of understand uh, Asian America by looking at Bruce's story. So, you know, immigration, mm. um, self-defense, especially in this moment, you know what I mean? It's become so, so crucial to us um, in so many different types of ways. Um, how we uh, are all actually here because of war and imperialism and colonialism, um, all of that stuff. So I'm, I'm able to kind of take Bruce's story as the, as the spine and go back to talking about immigration and move forward to 2020, 2021, uh, 2022 as well. I'm talking mm. about all those kinds of of issues and questions. And it's just been so much fun to be able to do. Um, the, I was going to say the, the, uh, because you both brought it up is so this idea of like Bruce Lee as his stereotype. Mm. Right. And knowing that, uh, on the one hand, uh, they call us Bruce to make us make fun of us, mm. right. To mark us as outsiders, but they also call us Bruce when like, we're badass. So it's like, it's this d double-edged kind of thing. And, and I feel like in part to be able to kind of see a movie like, you know, everything everywhere all at once and see like martial arts, like alongside this family drama, alongside this, like, you know, uh, you know, this sort of, um, you know, Michelle Yell's playing a, a loser, right? She's about to lose the business. She's about to lose her husband. She's about to lose her daughter. That right. that's how you know she's an amazing actor, Ab right? Absolutely. That she can play a loser. That Michelle Yeoh can yeah, play a loser. Play a loser, yeah. right? But it, but like flipping it and then being able to add all of this and show like the deep and broad like humanity that we're that is us is what makes the movie so so great. I think um, so. It feels like we're in a moment now where where maybe people can actually really see you know, um, Bruce for, um, who he is and who he was. And, you know, it's weird because we elevate him to be a legend and I'll shut up after this, but <laughs> we elevate, we elevate him to be a legend, but that makes him less human right. in so many ways. And to think about like the, the things that he actually overcome, that he was a, a war child, you know what I mean? That he was, um, like starving and sick, mm. just like all the other war babies that, um, we can talk about today, right. In this very moment, uh, that he went through that, that he came to the, the U.S. and lived in segregated neighborhoods, mm. right? Um, that he was uh, treated as as lower than low, you know, um, due to class issues within the Chinese American community, but also uh, obviously due due to race. Mm. Uh, that he like went to Hollywood and was like the sidekick who had like like I, I counted about ten or fifteen words for the whole first season of 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 the green hornet most of which were like what do we do now boss you know and and like from there was able to to achieve what he achieved is it's it's amazing um it's a huge kind of breakthrough but it's hard for us to see because he's uh been separated from his humanness and i think to be able to to talk about him as an Asian american recovers that i you know i wholly agree and i've, I've seen the the kind of iconography the the sort of uh, uh, beatification of Bruce. I mean, on the one hand, it's great to see people admire and aspire to somebody who was a superstar and invent a self-invent, a self-made superstar. But it's also 
it's shocking what that erases. And I'll add a couple things, like to his Asian American identity, he was mixed race, right? His his mom was biracial, and uh, as a result, you know, he actually was in Hong Kong. He had to defend himself. He like fought kids, and eventually, part of the reason he got sent to the United States because he was like getting into a lot of fights. And part of the reason was because people saw him when he was younger as an outsider, even in, in Asia. So that whole sort of outsider there, outsider here thing, man, that's like something a lot of us, have, I think, experienced as Asian Americans. Then here's the other layer. Um, so his name actually is uh, Lee Junfan, right? Which is, uh, you know, it's it's actually traditionally a feminine name, a female name. And, you know, the reason why uh, he was given that was because, you know, there was this whole thing about this perception of a family curse that would strike down like eldest sons and everything. Oh my God. You know, let's not get into all of that. Uh, but you know, he, he did have to, again, grow up with a name that was traditionally like a woman's name. And another, it was another reason to bring out his fist sometimes. And I, I, I think of myself, uh, in my own playgrounds in Staten Island, again, not, not the, the, the kindest neighborhood in the world. Uh, in some ways, the bruceness of it all was like a weird armor when I needed it, right? There was always that sort of suspicion out of the corner of Bully's eyes that, like, maybe I could bring something out, right? I don't know any martial arts, but maybe I do, you know? <laughs> that sort of, you know, idea that Asians everywhere have, like, this secret weapon that if you just trigger them too much, out comes the fanny pack, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. That's, that's, you know, it's something which, uh, like, it was a weapon. And I... I mean, that's part of the reason why I think martial arts movies are, are such a, an amazing lens through which to see ourselves in some ways, right? It is our superheroes, but it's also martial arts movies aren't really about superheroes in the Superman sense. It's really they're really more of the superheroes in the kind of Peter Parker sense, like the you know you're not you're not saving the world with your fish, you're saving your brother, you're saving your school. It's a local neighborhood, friendly neighborhood martial arts superhero, right? And most of the time you start out as losers and you train your ass up. You know, you go through the training cycle to become a hero. So it's always been about giving people who are marginalized this additional layer. And that actually brings up this other point of martial arts being actually one of the conversations that always existed between the black and the, the Asian American communities because the first people to really embrace martial arts cinema were urban audiences, black audiences in, in cities where they saw martial arts as literally an opportunity to like both figuratively and, lit and literally, I guess, you know, see self-strengthening, see a way to actually uh, control, you know, things that felt like out of control. And to this day, you know, most of the people who I, I have had the most wisdom dropped on me, you know, around both martial arts as a an activity and martial arts cinema have been African-American. I mean, I, you know, so resilience. I mean, growing up, I had told people I was Chinese just so that everybody would just think I'm cool because <laughs> it, it was the Bruce Lee effect. It was like, oh, you know, who's Chinese? Bruce Lee. <laughs> Don't mess with me. Now we all got Korean. I am BTS. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, now, now even I get to claim a little bit of that through uh, Lisa and Blackpink. Yeah, we're yeah. we're all. Related. I I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go um, to social studies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And some of the films that you cover here: The Good Earth, Chan is Missing, Gandhi, My Beautiful Laundrette. Mm. Uh, Gung Ho, The Last Emperor, Who Killed Vincent Chin, Children of Invention, Slumdog Millionaire, Twinsters, Gook, Crazy Rich Asians, Mining the Gap, American Factory, Parasite, Yellow Rose, and Minari. Uh, the quote here that you pulled out, you have to trace the scars. Not to get super serious, but I don't think we can leave this conversation without covering those scars. I think that, um, I mean, it was a complicated uh, chapter to put together because it spans so much. I mean, this was this was really about kind of social the cinema of social issues, about uh, films that really delved more deeply into you know the world that we live in and and where we fit into it. And some of them are narratives, some of them are documentaries, some of them are um, 
you know, uh, kind of epic, so biopic stories, and others are, are intimate stories of, of individuals struggling in social social conditions that uh, that these films, in many cases, lift up. I, I, I think that um, the reason why I, I wanted to include this as a dimension to explore is because for the longest time, it felt like um, there were only a few genres in which Asian Americans could play, you know, in films that were targeting wider audiences, Mm -hmm. right? There was sort of the family dramas, uh, you know, intergenerational strife and all that, you know, the Joy Luck Club and and things after it that followed the same route. Um, And then there were stories that, you know, generally sidelined Asians uh, either as victims or as sidekicks or as buffoons. Uh, But stories, especially that talked about these deeper, uh, more quote unquote serious issues, right? Um, These were stories that, that I think for the longest time, people didn't really take stories coming out of our community, you know, turning the camera around and looking at, you know, either our communities abroad or, 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 you know, here in America uh, with that same sort of depth of seriousness. Um, I remember, you know, watching films like the last emperor and thinking, Oh my gosh, you know, it's like the spectacle, you know, they have thousands of people on screen. It's this historical, you know, drama that focuses on, uh, kind of the end of a, a chapter in, in Chinese history. And of course it was directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. And, you know, while it was a, a truly kind of, it was a spectacle, right? It, it was hard for me to connect to it because it, it was seeing from the things seen from the outside as opposed to from the inside. I wanted to know more about, you know, what happened to the people, not just the emperor, but, you know, in this convulsion of Chinese history, mm-hmm. Where did the, what happened to ordinary people at that time? Where did, you know, people who were the, let's say, ancestors of my friends flee to during this, this time when there was a revolution occurring in China, when dynasties were falling? You know, those weren't the stories that anybody wanted to tell. People wanted to tell these big stories, big budget stories that could look like period costume dramas. And, you know, it, it took a while for us to be able to kind of move around to a point where smaller but just as intimate and just just as important stories from an asian american centered or an asian even centered perspective could be told uh so you know the other thing that i i I felt was important to bring up here is in the context of like you know documentaries which have been such a huge part of asian american filmmaking uh who killed vincent chin right by rene tajma pena uh, a good friend of both of ours, who we've collaborated with, uh, each, each of us individually, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Christine Choi. Uh, that film was more than just a work on screen. It was it was arguably a work that kind of sparked a movement, right? It, it was the first time that people actually saw uh, for themselves the 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 fire that built uh, in Detroit, Michigan, uh, the inter racial, the sort of pan-racial coalition of peoples who gathered together to fight for justice for an Asian American person who had been unjustly killed. And it it not it didn't just kind of enrage people. It, it motivated them and inspired them for the first time to really kind of take a, a serious look at what it meant to be Asian in America. And that's what movies in, I think, this chapter do. Yeah. They're the movies that actually try to move people beyond what happens in the seats. They're the people, they're the movies that want to take you through the lobby and out into the streets and say, you know what, what you saw should change you, should motivate you, should force you to do something beyond just watching. Uh, so that's what this chapter is about. But, you know, this is, this is stuff that, you know, you've been kind of elbows deep in. You've told, you've been kind of much more focused on history and telling our history and, you know, kind of the history of various communities than I have. And uh, even in, in the work that I, I think you did with Renee herself, you know, mm-hmm. the Solidarity Project you did, mm-hmm. I, I was just very strongly uh, inspired by this idea that we could use images on screen to actually motivate people to change their behaviors towards one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, thanks. So yeah, we, we did a project called the May 19th Project, which is the shared birthday of Malcolm X and, and Yuri Kochiyama. And um, out of that, we created or we commissioned um, almost a dozen pieces, uh, short stuff to live on, on social media and also to be used in classrooms um, that took different vignettes from history to illustrate um, everything from um, Frederick Douglass, uh, Frederick Douglass' support for Chinese in America uh, and the Wong Kim Ark um, case uh, here in San Francisco and how that led to us having birthright citizenship um, all the way and up through the Third World Liberation um, Front and the, 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 the strike here in, in, uh, in the Bay Area, the strikes here in the Bay Area. Um, uh, but yeah, it just, just sort of continuing in, in um, that path of folks trying to illuminate um, and, and spark and, and inspire. Um, I, I had a question about why you included Parasite in that, in that list. I think uh, part of it was that Parasite, um, it was a much awarded film. It's an incredible film. But it's also a film that's deeply about class, right? And deeply about underclassness. And I, I think that in an era where uh, a lot of, you know, what people see manifesting from Korea is, you know, it's it's shiny, it's pretty, it's it's, uh, you know, uh, gorgeous men and women like dancing and singing. And Parasite, um, with all of the acclaim it got, with all the the attention it, it received. It shows a side of Korea and, and ultimately a side of, of uh, I think, all of our societies that a, a lot of people refuse to really stare at closely. This notion that inequity, that inequality is, is something that in the very cracks of our society could cause it to come tumbling down. Mm-hmm. I, and I really love also just you know this idea that it was something... It was a film that forced us to look at, not look away mm-hmm. at the people who we usually step over, if you will. I mean, when I first saw it, and, and you know, I, 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 I felt exhausted, actually, after watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's incredible work, but it also put me through the ringer of just thinking about the ways in which, you know, I myself was a parasite, you know, in in uh, a society where both my privileges and and the things I take for granted uh, were made possible only because of the invisible work of so many other people. And you know, to the extent that it was one of the first films to to kind of cross the boundary of you know of genre and of uh, you know of language. Uh, in this present era, and to receive the kind of attention it did, um, it, it felt like a, a, a nice, it felt like an important kind of exclamation point around uh, this whole notion of the cinema of social issues. This is what it looks like when you, as Bong Joon-ho himself said, you know, kind of overcome the one-inch hurdle of subtitles to to see what the rest of the world looks like. And when you look at the rest of the world, maybe you see a little something yourself as well. We have a uh, question from the audience. First of all, uh, thank you so much. This is so interesting. I, I'm i learning so much. So Jeff and Jeff, <laughs> you know, as an Asian American growing up in California and then going to college in the East Coast, you know, all that what was in media was really informative because it was kind of part of our self-image. And I'm, I work in a career where I work with a lot of um, Asian Americans and they are so impacted and their confidence is so impacted by what's in the media, right? So you guys talked earlier about the stereotypes, then about martial arts, right? Then about now you have all these things about Asian power, but you know, it still belies that we're looking for role models. We're looking for stereotypes. We're looking for things to look up for. I'm just curious what's next. You know, we've gone beyond, you know, like, you know, you know, all these young men are working out so they could be buffed like, you know, right. You know, you know, or we're all showing that we, we, we have economic power, but like, there's more to us, right. We're not just those tropes, right. There's more to us. So I'm curious, you know, what are the genres that you see coming out next and how we, as the audience, how can we support that? How can we have more nuanced programming come out that features our community in more layers than just those tropes? 
such a great question. Yeah. I Sorry. actually, uh, thank you for that. I, this summer was really interesting because you had Joyride and Past Lives. Shortcomings. Shortcomings. And like the continuing of everything everywhere all at once in theaters all at the same time. And I know you wrote about it. I was able to squeeze a little mention into the piece I did on Bruce um, for the 50th. Um, but that's what's interesting is, is, is it, was, it felt like this unheralded moment, actually, for us to be able to kind of see all of these different types of, of narratives yeah, um, on screen. Uh, <laughs> Joyride's much different from that slide. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and so I, you know, that's the, this is what Viet Thanh Nguyen has been talking about. And we were talking about this earlier, the right to be me- mediocre, right? The, the idea that we'll have so many stories out there that will represent such a breadth of who we actually are, that we can actually make shows that um, are, are not that great. <laughs> and will survive, really, because you know there's um, uh, those of us who are like in the publishing industry uh, are very aware, you know, like wow, if this book doesn't make it, it's an Asian American novel, or it's an Asian American history of of the arts, or it's Asian American this or an Asian American that, that it might make it harder for. We're still in that in that phase. Um, it's been a, a good sort of last five years around publishing. Um, for a lot of novelists, but um, you know, we're always worried that the the floor could, the trap door could open up. You know, so um, so I, you know, I don't know that there's a particular genre. Um, what I'm hopeful is is that in the coming or actually here uh, backlash that we're we're seeing, um, that we'll have had enough networking and structures built up that we'll be able to, you know, level up for, uh, like my kids who mm. my, my son just graduated from film school, um, this past year, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that in, you know, five, 10 years that they're able to take it up to the, the next level. Um, so yeah, you can talk about your son. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the context of the right to be mediocre. <laughs> um, no, Whoa. no, no. He's he's my my son is is exceptional uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, I will say he does not feel the pressure to excel the way that I did, right? And and it's not because I haven't tried to pressure him. I do. It's like I'm still an Asian dad at the end of the day. Um, but um, I mean, he's so my my son Hudson was on this show fresh off the boat for six seasons. And, you know, it was a pretty pivotal moment for Asian American popular culture. Uh, but he's a little bit like at this point where like dad, I've done a lot. You know, <laughs> you know I don't want to work so hard anymore. Um, so, you know, good for you. Hudson. C's are good enough, man. I'm yeah. good, I'm, <laughs> um, but uh, it's our dream, right? He's that's the dream, right? For the we, for our kids to retire at 20. 20- Three. Yeah. You know, I want to be able to see nothing but seas. Anyway, uh, but um, I, I do think that this there's something uh, there's something to kind of peel back a little bit more. It's not just the right to be mediocre, which I think is important. We should be able to fail like we should yeah. have a, the sort of the privilege of the safety net that so many other people have gotten, you know, again, White filmmakers, if their film fails, it does not do anything for the next white filmmaker to come along. People are not saying no more movies are white filmmakers, right? But, but all Asians are come, somehow a hive mind. We're all connected, and anything that one of us does, all of us is responsible for. Something which, again, you know, my our, our friend Phil, uh, Phil Yu talks about in the sort of term the rep sweats, right? We're all perspiring over what the other Asian does on screen. If it if it screws up, it just poisons the well for the rest of us. And I, I think it's not just about the right to me- be mediocre and to fail when we do and when, when uh, we do be able to bounce back. It's kind of like the right to be middle brow, right? It's the right to not actually have to be exceptional, not, not have to win awards, not have to be the model minority on screen or around the screen or behind the screen. And, uh, and, and also, I mean, to tell stories that don't feel like they have to work so hard, right? Stories that are smaller, stories that are more intimate, stories that I, I think of, you know, all of the, the films out there that get that coveted slot of kind of indie darling, right? 
And when you read the the log line, you're like, who decided this was a film, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what was that film? Um, the, the the one that, uh, and it was basically just like about, it was, it was, uh, Paul 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 Anderson's film about like growing up in the seventies or something. Oh, oh sorry. Yes, yes. Uh, you know that you read the logline for that, and you're like, "This is just you deciding to whatever throw shit up there," and it's fine. It's perfectly fine. But we should be able to make those films and and still have them feel meaningful. We should be able to tell stories about small chapters in our lives, about uh, coincidental connections and chance meetings, and and I actually think past lives in a lot of ways with all the acclaim it's getting. And I think it is, it's winning awards, it will win more. I think that's actually, in some ways, a threshold crossing. Because it is the kind of film that doesn't try to boil the ocean. There is no martial arts and science fiction and multiverse and everything. And I, I love everything everywhere all at once. But it's, it's also a film that kind of threw everything up on screen to make sure that you were constantly just, you know, never going to turn your face away, Right. Past Lives is quiet. Mm-hmm. It's a small film about two people who intersect and then go apart and then maybe intersect again. And the parts don't quite fit the same way. And just saying that alone, saying that it is a, this intimate, you know, kind of romantic, not quite romantic drama between two people separated by diaspora, that's not enough. That's not a pitch that anybody's going to open up a, a wallet for until you actually read the script, until you actually see the performances, you don't realize what great film it is. And I want us to have that. I want us to be able to just tell small stories with incredibly beautiful effect. Uh, it kills me that I had to finish the manuscript for this before writing about past lives. Mm. Because to me, if that film is successful as I think it will be over the next couple of months, mm-hmm. it will truly be a Rubicon crossing for us as Asian Americans. Mm. We'll welcome that Rubicon crossing at some point, and I think even, you know, 2024. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, uh, but both of you have been so incredible and amazing. We do have copies of the golden screen right outside the door if you don't have a copy yet. I want to thank both of you so much because, thank you, uh, you know, thank you for our first allowing uh, mediocrity. <laughs> I get to join the crowd. <laughs> I might be somebody in 2024. Um and uh, thank you for all the work and opening doors for all of us. So, Jeff and Jeff, thanks all of you for joining <laughs> us here at the Commonwealth Club. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> thank you, Michelle. <laughs>